0: Well, I know, if you'll lay that aside, we'll come back to it. I know some of you are—you just can't wait to see how I am going to deal with Genesis 38 tonight. Right? Yep. Yeah. Some of you are just wondering how in the world we are going to deal with chapter 38 and a few of the verses in there. Hmm interesting. And let me say you're going to have to wait, and here's why. In staff meeting this week, they said with Awana beginning tonight, you may have some back that you have not had all summer. You may have some adults back. And uh, probably Genesis 30, uh, 38 would not be the place for them to jump in for the first time after being out all summer. And uh, so I said, well, I know what I'll do. I'll deal with the passage out of 2 Timothy that the Awana ministry is based on. And they said, do that. So if you've not been with us over the summer in Genesis, you can go online, and all the Genesis studies are there on our church website. And you can catch up. And uh, you can also do some study of your own in Genesis 38. And uh, you can help me deal with that next week. Okay? Some applications to Genesis 38. Uh, might, might be a good chance to call on somebody else next week to do chapter 38. Just kidding. We, will, we deal with the passages as they come up. And so we'll deal with that next week. So spread the word, and uh, read chapter 38, and you can understand my comments tonight on that. Okay? Find 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to look tonight at the theme of standing approved. Uh, what's Awana? What's the name stand for? <laughs> approved workmen are not ashamed, right? 2 Timothy 2.15 is the foundation verse that the Awana ministry is based on. And of course in in Awana each week it's three parts, it's a 90 minute program, three parts. There's the the council time, Uh, there's, there's, there's the scripture recitation and handbook time then the council time and then the Iwana games, right? So that's what your kids and grandkids do every Wednesday night. And they have a book that they need your help going through. And uh, by the way, let me challenge parents to memorize those verses that your kids have to memorize. Uh, Make it a family thing. I think that'd be great. And go through the book with them and you'll be called on to help them do some things. Uh, in the course of Awana, anyway, but uh, great scripture memory uh, ministry for kids. But again, it is based on uh, chapter two, verse fifteen. But let's back up at verse fourteen and let's read down through verse twenty-one. Paul says to Timothy, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord, depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. You know, it's said that even from early on, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson knew exactly what he wanted to be. He wanted to be a writer, way back into his childhood, as early as he could remember. And of course, he went on to write such works as Kidnapped and Treasure Island. Maybe you've read some of those but he also discovered at a very young age that being a writer would demand discipline and it would demand a lot of hard work he knew that he needed to do two things he needed to first of all read great writers their works so he could see how they handled themes developed themes and how they built the plot and all that into the story. Secondly, uh, he knew that he would need to practice his writing skills. And so as a young man, they said everywhere he went, you could always see Robert Louis Stevenson with two things. There was a book under one arm, a book of a great writer, and under the other arm, there was an empty writing tablet. He wanted that writing tablet so through the course of the day, if there were flashes of insight, he could write those flashes down. And so that's how he lived his life with those daily disciplines, reading great literature and practicing his own writing skills. He wanted to stand approved one day in the public's eye as a great author himself. Let me ask you tonight, is it your desire to be an approved workman for God? Well, let's talk about that tonight. Let's talk about some requirements out of chapter 2. Now, I want you to notice something first before we get into it. In the original context, who were these admonitions given to? Timothy. And where was it that Timothy served? Ephesus. He was the pastor there of the church. And uh, Paul's writing to him. Um, he's, Timothy's his child in the faith. And he's in 1 and 2 Timothy. He's giving Timothy instructions about how to conduct himself in the ministry. But folks, I don't want you to think that the uh, pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, are only for ministers. There's not two standards in the Bible, one for ministers and another for laity. We are all to be holy. And so when we find these admonitions being given here, we can put our own name in the blank too and know that these are words that apply to us. Do they apply to ministers? Yes, but they apply to each of us. Now Paul's going to indicate to Timothy what all is involved in standing approved. And he's going to talk here about it involving one's words, one's theology, one's priorities, and how one deals with sin in their life. Let's begin tonight uh, with words. If you're taking notes, which I hope you are, number one would be guard your words. Guard your words. Look again at verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Then look down at verse 16. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Folks, to be the Christian workman that Christ would have you to be, you've got to get a handle on your words. Words matter. Our speech matters. Man alone in God's creation is given this unique ability to express himself in words. But we need to be very careful how we use those words. You know, there's probably no air, uh, area of human existence that gets more abused than our talk. I'm reminded of the church gossip. A lady who was the church gossip. Somebody's phone's going off. I think. <laughs> The church gossip, who, after a sermon, she came down during the invitation. She said, Pastor, the message has convicted me today about my words, my my gossip, and I want to lay my tongue on the altar. And he said, Well, ma'am, our altar is only 25 feet long, but go ahead, do the best you can. James writes in the book of James that the entire course of somebody's life can be set on fire by their words. Most families know of probably somebody in the family that struggles with this. Maybe every family get-together, maybe every holiday meal might turn into a spat. Because of this one person who can't control their tongue. anybody anybody like that in your family? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah? Okay. <laughs> well, there's a broader application, uh, and we'll get into that in a moment. A more targeted application, but the most important idea in this thought about guarding our words would be from verse 14, that we're to speak truthfully about things pertaining to God. We're to guard our words when it comes to things pertaining to God. Now, of course, this has special application to the minister or to anybody in the church who's ever charged with teaching Scripture. And if that's your role... You are to focus on the great doctrines of our faith and not fight over trivial matters. Paul says, Timothy, you are to remind your listeners of these things. Now, in verses 1 to 13, Paul has written to Timothy about these things. Remind them of these things. What are the these things? that he's to constantly remind them of well that they need to be disciples who are passing along the gospel to others we're to continue to pass along the baton to others who come after us we are to endure hardship for the sake of the gospel and we're to remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead And so Timothy is to constantly remind his his listeners of these things. These things that are so important in the Christian life. Kind of reminds me of what Paul said elsewhere to another church. He said, for me to write the same things to you over again is no burden to me and it is useful to you. We need to be reminded of things, don't we? Now, I want you to keep in mind that Christianity at this point was young. The church was growing, getting established. Those, there were those coming into the church. And what did the church not have to the same degree that we have it today? the complete canon of Scripture. They didn't have that yet. Now, as we'll see in a minute, some were teaching certain strange doctrines. They were going off on their own, going off on their own authority, and teaching strange doctrines, even that there was no such thing as the resurrection from the dead. Others were teaching that Jesus is not coming again in a second advent. Still others were teaching that Jesus was not really a man. He only appeared to be a man. He appeared to be flesh and blood. The Gnostics. John wrote against the Gnostics in 1 John, for instance. And and that was probably one of the biggest challenges to the early church. Gnosticism. Those were just some of the heresies being taught. And Paul points out, as the other apostles do, that those are heresies that have dire consequences on the church. Very destructive to the church. And so we see here that the worst possible use for speech would be to speak falsely about God. And so what's Paul saying to Timothy? The approved workman must be careful that he or she guards their words when it comes to what we teach about God because eternities literally hang in the balance. Now look at verse 14 and 16 again. Just keep your eyes there for a moment. Uh, What he says about useless words, they are useless, they're unprofitable, Worse yet, they lead to the ruin of those who listen. I'll have more to say about that in a moment. It'll lead to further ungodliness, and it'll spread like gangrene. Now, all of this talk that he is mentioning here refers to arguing about speculative matters of theology. Some people like to argue about things that we really don't have a final word on from the pages of Scripture. Does this mean that we can't have healthy debates and discussions about various doctrines? No, he's not talking about that at all. There needs to be more of that, more serious engagement and discussions about the doctrines uh, of our faith but folks there is some discussion that is pointless in the middle ages for example they would argue endlessly about how many angels could dance on the head of a needle I'm, that was a real argument who cares it doesn't matter what's the point and Paul is warning them to under warning Timothy to understand that some of these discussions can even be disruptive and damaging. If we go beyond what the Bible says and start teaching our own opinions or traditions as being from God, we could end up destroying the faith of some. Why? Because false doctrine is damaging. I've said before, it does matter what you believe. It's not a matter of simply being sincere in what you believe. It also matters what you believe. Is it true? Is it true what you say about God? Does it line up with Scripture? Now, folks, I fully realize that we live in a postmodern age where people want to tell us that truth is relative. You know, one man's truth is not necessarily another man's truth isn't it interesting though that it's only uh, in matters of theology or philosophy that that we believe that nonsense that there is no truth if we carried a group of you tonight up to the roof of of the core and said jump off some of you will gravity will have no effect on you give it a try would that be true wouldn't be true at all. We would all go cosplat. Truth is truth. It's not relative, and truth matters. Now, look at verse 17, what he says here. Their talk will spread like gangrene among them, or Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, they are upsetting the faith of some. Two men who are named here, teaching no such thing, or that the resurrection has already passed. They've gone astray, Paul says, and they're leading others astray. They're damaging the faith of others. Now, scholars believe that. What they're teaching is closely akin to what Paul also addressed in 1 Corinthians 15. What was being denied by these men was an actual physical resurrection, a bodily resurrection. They were spiritualizing the resurrection to say that if you're a believer in Christ, you've already been spiritually raised, and that's all the resurrection you're going to get. There's no future hope beyond that. Folks, it's very important to see that the Bible teaches a physical, bodily resurrection from the dead. Jesus was literally raised bodily. He's in heaven that's a real place, and he's preparing a place, a real place for us. Now, in all probability, what Hymenaeus and Philetus were doing was just sowing seeds of Gnosticism and and Greek philosophy. And in one branch of of Gnosticism, they said that all flesh is bad. Anything material is bad. The spiritual is good. But all flesh is bad. And they were trying to say that for that reason and others, Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Folks, it's important to understand that the resurrection is bodily. God is making all things new. Heaven is not going to consist of disembodied spirits flying around in a spirit world or a phantom world. Revelation 21 and 22 describes heaven as a real place. And folks, that's an important final chapter in the narrative of redemption in the Bible. Sin will be defeated in the arena where sin reigns. And that's in the flesh and in the real material world. Satan will never be able to say to God, you might have beat me in spiritual aspects, but I beat you in the real world. What you read about in Genesis 1 and 2 was the creation of a real world and that's what the new heavens and new earth will be like. A real world, a real place, a physical place where there is no sin and no Satan. So you can see how these two men were upsetting the faith of some saying that there was no physical bodily resurrection from the dead. Now folks, lest you believe that this is just a first century world argument, you can get in your car and drive eight miles down the road to UNCC and there's a Christian professor there or he claims to be a Christian, he's not, based on what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 about denying the resurrection. Talk to Steve Patterson in our church about this guy sometimes. Dr. James Tabor is his name. Dr. James Tabor. He denies a real physical bodily resurrection. He keeps taking all these trips to Israel with with Steve's group that's going. Uh, these digs that Steve Patterson goes on in Israel in the summer. James Tabor is on many of those trips because James is convinced he's going to find the bones of Jesus buried somewhere. I'm serious. That guy's just right down the road here in Charlotte, North Carolina, denying, just like Hymenaeus and Philetus, denying the bodily resurrection. So again, what am I saying? This is not something that was just part of a first century world debate that doesn't have application to us today. Well, in verse 17, Paul says that such false doctrine in the church, like denying the resurrection, is like gangrene. Your translation may say cancer. Gangrene? What what happens in gangrene? Gangrene? Why does it do that? No blood blood supplies cut off, flesh dies, and flesh around that continues to die. And if it's if that section's not cut out or that limb is not cut off, what's going to happen? It's going to continue to spread, and it's going to kill you. What's that saying about false doctrine being compared to something like that? If it remains, it's deadly for the body. And so again, what's Paul saying here? We've got to guard our words, especially when it comes to teaching about God. Now, another kind of speech referred to here could be all speech that's just frivolous or meaningless or damaging. This would be things like gossip and backbiting or speech that tears down instead of edifying. And look at verse 16. He refers to it as worldly chatter or empty chatter. Write down Ephesians 4.29. In Ephesians 4.29, the Bible says, "...let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths," but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. A good rule of thumb for our talk is this, and this is a quote by William Barclay. He writes, if at the end of our talk and discussion we are closer to one another and closer to God, then all is well. But if at the end of our discussion we have erected barriers between each other and we've left God more distant and our view of him befogged, then, then all is wrong. The aim of all Christian discussion and of all Christian action is to bring a man nearer to God. Don't destroy with your tongue what God has purchased with His blood. Let me ask you in the church that if you ever hear speech that either veers away from the truth of Scripture or that's slanderous or gossip towards somebody or mean-spirited, don't be a part of that. Don't, Don't get involved in that. Don't, also don't quarrel over non-essentials. There ought to be an agreement on essentials, but a little bit of grace and charity over non-essentials. But again, don't be a part of talk that is ungodly and leads to further ungodliness. Ungodliness now notice what he says again in verse 14 all such talk ruins the hearers verse 16 he says it leads people into more and more ungodliness in verse 17 it spreads like gangrene in verse 18 it upsets the faith of some you get what he's pointing out there what do you notice there it's a downward spiral right It just goes from bad to worse. Whether we're talking falsely about God or the precious doctrines of our faith or whether we're talking evil about others, there's no good outcome in that. There's no good outcome in that. And it destroys the church. Now, second main point. Make a holy presentation of yourself to God. Verse 15, and then verses 20 to 22. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And then in verse 20 he says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, if you're reading from the King James Version, what's verse 15 say? So study. Study to show yourself approved. But with changes in language, that's not the best word in modern uses. Uh, The New American Standard says be diligent to present yourself. The ESV says do your best to present yourself as one approved. uh, uh, Yourself to God as one approved. Those, Those are better renderings. Yes, it involves the study of God's word so that we will present that accurately. But it includes all of your life as well. And that's the reason newer translations expand on the word study, because it applies to life. The Greek word is orthotomeo. Now, what do you hear in that word? Orthotomeo. Ortho, okay. The root ortho, what do you hear about that? Or, ortho. Okay, to straighten out, right? To straighten out. <laughs> Medical professions today, that's like you say. Straighten teeth out, for instance. Uh, It means to cut straight or to straighten. Cut straight the word of God so that your life will, will be a life on the right path. Again, it involves study, but it involves life application too. Think of it this way. Our handling of Scripture is to be like an offering that we make unto God and then how we apply that scripture in our everyday life is also part of our offering that we present to God. That's what he's talking about here. Everything about our lives is to be presented to God. Think of verse 15 this way, bringing all of your energies toward one ultimate goal, and that goal being to stand before God approved. Now the word approved refers to something that has been tested and approved. What do they supposedly do with steel before they send it out to go into these tall skyscrapers. What What is still done? They have pro- a process through which they analyze it and test it. Make sure it's strong enough. You don't want a building come tumbling down on you, right? So they test it. Exactly. Somebody who does that. That's the picture here. Somebody whose life They present their life, they properly study the word, they apply the word, and then their life and everything about them stands approved to God. Whatever test God takes them through, they stand approved. And the great promise in verse 19 is what? The Lord knows those who are his. Isn't that great? The Lord knows those who are His. Said that one time,
1: didn't he?
0: Yeah, and we're going to talk about that. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the background of this. I'll, we'll get to that in a, in a moment. God knows the difference between a hymenaeus and a philetus and somebody who is genuine, somebody who is approved. God knows the difference. I mean, think about it. Jesus said in that day, people stand before Him and some will say, Lord, Lord, and He'll say to some what? Depart from me, I never knew you. In other words, He knows the difference. He knows those who are His. It's believed that verse 19 here uh, harkens back as Kathy has made reference to Numbers 16, Korah's Rebellion. Does anybody remember that story, Korah's Rebellion? Take over leadership. Okay, there was that group that came up against Moses and they didn't like Moses anymore. Who are you to lead us? And what did the, what the Lord tell him Said, uh, Moses, you stand before the people and say, if you're with me, you get over here. If you're with Korah, you get over there. And that's what the people did. And what happened with Korah and that group? What did God do? Open the ground and swallow them. And what, what was the Lord's word to Moses? That he knows those who are his. And that he makes a distinction. Folks, living a life honoring to the Lord, knowing the Lord and living a life that is honoring to him, is not a waste of time. He knows those who are his. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He knows those who are His. It's a great promise. Thirdly, deal with sin in the church and in your life. Verses 20, or I should say the second part of verse 19 And then through verse 21, Paul uses the analogy here of a large house. A typical house has some valuables in it. You have things like gold and silver, maybe some china or some antiques, and you honor those valuables by doing what? Taking them out for special occasions, right? Holidays, birthdays, anniversaries, you bring these special things out. And then you just have the ordinary common stuff, right? Paul adds that some of these vessels are for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Now, seems a little weird using the word dishonorable instead of just common, because in a house, there are some things that are common, but he mentions here some things that are. Dishonorable. So, commentators talk about that a lot. And uh, maybe some of you senior adults can help me out here. Is it a bed Very good. Old timers, before indoor plumbing, every house, what'd you have up under the bed? What'd they call them? Chamber pots, right? My grandparents called them thunder jugs. (laughs) But uh, you'd be grateful for that chamber pot at 3 a.m. in the morning on a winter morning that's about 15 degrees outside that you don't have to go out to the outhouse, right? They'd use the chamber pot under the bed. And then slide it out, slide it out the next day and clean it. Have it ready for the next night. But the word dishonorable goes even stronger than that, doesn't it? Nobody's gonna pull out that chamber pot and show it off. It's something dishonorable that you don't call attention to, right? In your house. You don't you don't invite your company over to see your chamber pot. You do Ronnie does? Well you're the only one. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I'll, I'll just take your word for it that you've got an old one. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, you. Okay. Well, you can take us a picture and sh- send the picture to us. <laughs> <laughs> Again, he's making. We're spiraling downward. <laughs> He's, he's making a comparison here with the church. A large house, silver and gold, some for special purposes, for some dishonorable. And he's comparing the church to this. Now think about what Jesus said in a church. What will there always be growing until the end of time? Wheat and tears, right? True believers, false believers. And he knows those who are his. The two exist together, and at the judgment they'll be separated. And so what's the promise in verse 21? If a man will cleanse himself from these, if he will cleanse himself from imposters and heretics like Hymenaeus and Philetus, he'll be used of the Lord. You see, it's two sides of a coin. On one side, you have the promise of God that God knows those who are His. But on the flip side of the coin, what do you have? You have the admonition clean up your life from ungodly influences. Which side do you emphasize? You emphasize both. Both are important. Yes, the Lord knows those who are His. And he knows that men like Hymenaeus and Philetus are definitely not his. But he has a commandment to those who are his. Stay away from unhealthy influences. Clean up your own life and be sanctified. Now, Listen to me just a minute longer. If you and I are going to stand before God and hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant, the entire focus, the entire orientation of your life has got to be different from that of the average man or woman out in the world. There's got to be a difference. We simply cannot live like everybody else and think that it's going to end well. It's not. When I started the message today, I read the words out of verse 14, remind them of these things. The need to disciple reliable men, the need to endure hardship, We've got to die with Christ. We've got to live as a soldier of the cross. We've got to remember that Christ lives and reigns. In other words, we've got to live the crucified life. We've got to live the crucified life with the right priorities. And it's going to cost. There's going to be times it's not easy. There's going to be times it's not convenient. But it's necessary. It's necessary. And so on Wednesday nights, as your kids and grandkids are learning through the Scripture how to stand as an approved workman, as adults in our Christian lives, let's likewise be thinking about living our lives so we will be approved workmen who don't need to be ashamed. Amen? Amen? Next week, Genesis 37. We'll talk about some. 38. We'll talk about some non-sanctified living next week, some dirty living. How not to act. Any comments before we go on to our prayer time? Okay. Mm-hmm. How about what now? Okay. Well, let me say two things about that. The, the language of the Bible is grave and burial. Uh, if you want to know my honest opinion, I think Christians ought to be buried not cremated. However, on the other hand, let me ask a question. Does does God need the remains for the resurrected body? No. And that's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians. Because as you're reading the argument there and the questions that were being posed to him, it's like some of them are thinking, well, you know, the body is decomposed and all. How's God going to bring all those pieces back together and and make a glorified body. And Paul's like, yeah, and Paul's like, you don't get it. Uh, God didn't need anything in the first place at creation. He, he creates ex nihilo out of nothing. He doesn't need the leftover pieces of wherever your body may be. And, and in that sense, all, cre- all cremation does is speed up the decomposition process anyway. Yeah. Like I say, burial is the language of the Bible. Uh, I know for economic reasons and also mainly even as equal to economic reasons is the mobility of society. People don't have a hometown anymore that they go back to where mom and dad and the siblings are buried. So they want to be able to take the remains with them. But anyway, uh, but they're not there. That person, that loved one's not there anyway. But anyway, I understand the reasons behind cremation. You know, burial is the language of the New Testament. But cremation is not going to prevent God from being able to deliver on His promise for a resurrection body. He doesn't need that stuff anyway. He
2: says He can raise up bodies from dry bones. Yeah. So He can also raise up bodies from ashes.
0: Sure, sure. Think of all those buried at sea, all of those incinerated in explosions and fires. God doesn't need the pieces of this body to make my new body. Yep, yep.
2: You know, you, uh, they say, "Okay, well, okay." I see it their way, but I'm not going to admit that their way is right, even though they know in their heart what the truth is. And so they, they, um, they stick to their their view, even though it's wrong, and they try to get others to go along with them. And uh, and and just uh, pride is there. Sure. You know, they, uh, there's. Uh, Well, I knew somebody anyway. Hmm. But anyway, everything would be going good. And he would know what the truth is, but he'd throw in what's called a can of worms. And it would create discontent.
0: Sure. And it would just cause fights and arguments. And everybody, instead of leaving edified, they would leave being torn down. And Paul is saying, avoid that.
2: Mm hmm. Yep. And what happens, the pride
0: goes before fall. Mm hmm. Unfortunately. Mm hmm. Heartbreaking. Yep. For many things. Yep.
1: What about the opposite of that? Um, I think you like Josh Harris. You've heard of him right? the writer. Yes. I've read his book. His book is good. Right. But all the people, all the kids and stuff that have read it, send them letters after letters saying, you can't do that. You can't. can't live a life like that you know who who are these kids we don't even know if they're believers or not somehow he let all this come on him and you know regardless of whether he was saved or not at the beginning but it's sad it's it's really sad that he allowed all that negative talk to pull him down
0: Hmm. in the
1: wrong direction you know who
0: knows what else has happened to the point that he finally renounced his faith yeah now I you know It's not that he was ever saved and lost it if if he was ever genuinely saved. He's still saved though he's disobedient and will pay a price at the judgment for being unfaithful. But it could be that he was never genuinely saved. I mean, somebody that's truly saved is going to remain saved, right? And I think all these people that are coming out nowadays renouncing their faith probably an indication they were never truly saved to begin with. He renounced Jesus Christ. Yeah. He apologized you sure. for judging them. He told them how sorry you are. Sure. And he's turned his back on biblical Christianity. And that's why I say people who do that, in all likelihood, they never had it to begin with.
1: he worked with others on making that work. Sure.
0: And sure. that doesn't reflect what's, what's true in his heart. Sure. And now what he's done will, what Paul is saying here, will upset the faith of many. Yeah. Yeah. Just a quick comment. That
1: verse 15, the word study. hmm
0: Hmm. I
1: mean, that's just my opinion. Sure. <laughs> Anybody in here say
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, I mean, it is sad that athletes in the world are more disciplined. As, and as Paul points out in, in his letters, how disciplined they were, and they would get the Stephanos, yes. which was a crown made out of leaves basically that in a week or two would be wilted. Yeah. Now, I mean they would get a lot of public praise that and sometimes statues in their honor. But nonetheless his point was that Stephanus wilts for something that wilts. And what a shame that they're that disciplined for something that dies. And we have God's truth and a relationship with Christ, and we oftentimes are lazy and not committed, and it's a shame. Sure. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: It's not the bad people in America that's made
0: it what it is. Right. yes
1: because we can we can end up if we're not knowledgeable if we don't have the doctrine if we don't have the right understanding of scripture we
0: can cause some damage sure to it, right? sure <laughs> well that was and Paul's argument you know he was zealous he was zealous for the faith of his fathers when he was a Pharisee um he was zealous but then of that
1: verse says be zealous Right. You know, that particular verse. Sure. Yes. You have to look
0: at the context always. Yes, truth, sure. Pick out a, a whole context. Right. Yep. Romans 12. I'm going to just read part of it. By the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this
1: world,
2: hmm. but be transformed
1: by the renewing of your mind.
2: Hmm. Yeah. The Young's Literal Translation says, "Be diligent." Yeah. Yes, yeah. See, I don't have this. Zealous and diligent and study to show yourself true.
0: They all have the same Sure. And what what we're seeing from verse 15 is when translators, when you have the parent language and receptor language, a lot of times there's not one word that translates out of one language into another. Uh, That's why translators struggle. How best do we put this Greek word or this Hebrew word into English because we don't have a perfect English word that fits this original language word. And so by reading different translations of the Bible, it's almost like having a commentary because you can see how translators struggled with these words and you can gain a lot of insight. We need closing close in prayer. They're going to be looking for the kids. I went on too long tonight, didn't I? Imagine that.